You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with award-winning author Mark Lee Gardner about his new book, The Earth is All That Lasts, a dual biography of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. Mark is a recognized authority on the American West, having appeared on numerous shows, including the History Channel, to discuss it. He's written several books, including one on Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett, as well as a biography of George Custer and one on Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. His writing has won the Spur Award, as well as the Army Historical Foundation Distinguished Writing Award. Welcome to the show, Mark. Well, thank you, Michael. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Good. Now, look, you have written extensively about the American West. What is it that interested you in Sitting Bull and Cutting and Crazy Horse uh, and the decision to, to write a book about them? Well, I've always been interested in, of course, the American past, um, but especially these larger-than-life iconic figures. And it seems like I'm always writing about icons, <laughs> uh, which is a challenge because a lot of other people write about icons, too. But, um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, my, my father, uh, he, was a, he was a logger in the Missouri woods, but uh, he always made sure to take off a week or two in the summer. And we would go on a vacation and we hit like every fort and, and historic house and museum. And one of the very first historic sites I remember visiting, and it had a huge impact on me, was Little Bighorn mm. Battlefield. Um, it was just, I was fascinated. And of course, as a kid, the fascination is, you know, these, these all these you know white men with Custer who perished and no one lived to tell the tale. But obviously there were many that lived to tell the tale on the other side. <laughs> right. Um, so as an adult, I've worked for the Park Service, and I actually wrote the guidebook for Little Bighorn, and I became more and more interested in uh, the other side of the story. What what were these people fighting for? Why were they there? Mm-hmm. Why were uh, Long Knives or Blue Coats after them? And uh, I, be, you know, and and there's no uh, more uh, impressive and iconic American Indian leaders. Uh, than Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. And so I I decided that's what I wanted to explore. And they were were natural subjects to combine Mm -hmm. in one book because they were allies and they were friends. And they were the the two most, they were the two who were the most violently opposed to concessions Mm -hmm. or giving in uh, to the white man, Euro-Americans. And so it just seemed like that was a natural thing to combine in one book and their, their struggle. Uh, to face and preserve their people and their culture. Well, having read the book, it works really well. But let me let me ask you some questions that people might not know anything about. So, okay. in reading the book, I learned for the first time uh, many things because it's so well researched. But I learned for the first time that these were not their original names, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. That their names kind of evolved over time. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about how these names came about? Yeah, um, and. It, you know, I'm glad that you found that interesting because it's also confusing. Because, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, as children, they have names, but they also can have a nickname along with it. So, for mm-hmm. instance, you'll remember that Sitting Bull's name as a child was Jumping Badger, but his nickname was Slow. Uh, and as I discussed in the book, there's a couple reasons for that. One is, is it may be because he was slow as a child. He wasn't as fast as others. But we also know that, that Sitting Bull, even as a child, was a very deliberate thinker. He didn't jump to conclusions or decisions. And so it may be you know, a, a nickname of admiration because he thought things out. Um, Crazy Horse uh, had curly hair. 
uh, as a child, and his nickname was Curly. Um, but, of course, as uh, these Lakota boys grow into manhood, when they have their first coup, and that's some accomplishment or feat in battle, touching an enemy, killing an enemy, then their father traditionally would give them another name. Uh, they also might get a name for some incident uh, that occurred that they were involved in, and one of them was Crazy Horse. Uh, 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 he was called His Horse Stands Looking, and it's about an incident where uh, he was able to catch this stallion very easily as it just let him walk up to him, and so he was known as His Horse Stands Looking. So that was very, very common in Lakota culture. It is very confusing, but yeah, they their names change over time. But okay. both Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull... Their eventual names that we know them by were the names of their fathers. Okay. Uh, All right. Sitting Bull's father was originally Sitting Bull, and Crazy Horse's father was Crazy Horse. And then once they give that name away to their son, they take another name. Yeah. So yeah. you remember, Crazy Horse's father took the name Worm. Yeah. Uh, and Sitting Bull's father took the name Jumping Bull. It's interesting. It's almost like you get to change identities a little bit, but we, we, we don't have enough time to go down that psychological yeah. uh, hole. <laughs> but you, you mentioned the fact that Crazy Horse had curly hair, and I couldn't help wondering as I read, and you said he had a very light complexion, do we know if his father was a white man? Well, uh, we can't say with certainty at this time, but um, because he had uh, a fair complexion and uh, curly hair and, and, in fact, light hair, uh, even people that knew Crazy Horace as an adult um, wondered if he wasn't of mixed heritage or mixed blood. Um, but what's been passed down to us is that his father uh, was Lakota and his mother was Lakota. And, you know, just like um, uh, Euro-Americans, you can have uh, people that are you know, ch- children that don't necessarily look like what our preconceived notions of what a child, you know, their sure. hair color and complexion mm-hmm. and all that. But it was different enough to make people question or wonder um, if he had a white uh, parent. Okay. Now, you mentioned that both men were Lakotas. Can you talk a little bit, because uh, I found this part fascinating as well, about the role that visions and dreams played for both men and for Lakotas? Yes. Um, so, again, part of this um, uh, progression into manhood, uh, you know, you seek a vision as a young man, as a young warrior, because the vision you have is going to help direct you through the rest of your life. And if you're lucky, you'll have several visions Um and it's really critical uh, to their growth and to their protection in, in warfare and battle. And usually a holy man would prepare uh, this individual for their vision. They would go out, and they would be fasting and stay out until they have some kind of a vision. And once they have that vision, then a holy man would interpret it for them uh, as well. And for instance, with Crazy Horse, his holy man was a man named Hornships, who was a cousin. And he instructed Crazy Horse on what kind of charms or war medicines that would protect him in battle. And because Hornchips was a, quote, stone dreamer, a lot of his charms involved uh, a stone, tying a stone under the arm or behind the ear, that kind of thing. But these visions, um, you know, they were very, very, as I already said, they were very important. Mm -hmm. um, And they helped direct them in their life and helped protect them. Uh, and events that were to become in the future, and some visions would actually tell uh, them the future. Sitting Bull, as you know, mm-hmm. was not only a warrior and leader early on, but he became a holy man as well, and he was known for his prophecy or his ability to see 
the future. And he had incredible visions um, that ended up becoming true, every one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay, in the book, and this kind of relates back to the visions and that, in the book you mentioned the Sundance. And you yes. write that it was, quote, at the heart of the Lakota experience, close quote. Can I get you to explain that and perhaps even read something from the book that uh, relates to the Sundance? Sure. Well, I always, I mean, I'm not Lakota, obviously, but I, it reminded me, I grew up in rural Missouri and in the Southern Baptist Church, and it reminded me of the revivals ah. that we'd have, because the revivals, they weren't just religious. Um, it was people coming together in the community um, over uh, several days, and so there'd be food, uh, you know, uh, social type uh, discussions and talks, and you're getting together talking about family. But there's also this huge religious component as well. And so the Sundance being central to Lakota existence, it's where the different uh, bands and tribes come together every summer, uh, and there's food. Uh, there's of course the Sundance, which is uh, a tribute or uh, basically honoring a promise to Wakantanka mm-hmm. or God for protection right. and would dance this dance. And it would involve, at the center of this dance, was giving flesh. And you've probably seen this uh, in pictures or movies where they would be tethered to a pole and their yeah. chest would be pierced and they would dance at that pole. But another way of giving flesh was to have your arm pricked with an awl and you'd be losing blood. I mean, your little pieces of your flesh and Sitting Bull of the Great Sundance before the Battle of Little Bighorn, each one of his arms had 50 pricks of flesh taken out before he actually danced before the sun. And I can read that passage. Yes, please um, do. Okay, let me turn it here to that page. That's all right. And if you need to set this up, Mark, with any background or whatever, please do so. Yeah, this, this occurs in June of 1876. Um, and the Sundance is on the Rosebud River uh, in Montana, and uh, or in present-day Montana, I should say. And Sitting Bull, prior to the Sundance, had prayed to Wakantanka for his people. And he asked Wakantanka to provide them with game and to protect them and to help them get along with the other bands and tribes. And he said, if you'll do this for me, I will dance the Sundance for you. And this was this was a very common uh practice. Uh, sometimes warriors going into battle, they would pray to walk in Tonka. If you let me live through this, I'll dance the sun dance for you. So when you're giving flesh, you're giving it to walk in Tonka. You're bleeding for walk in Tonka and to honor a promise that you had made or a gift that you received. So Sitting Bull, when I'm going to read this, has already uh, had both arms pricked 50 times, mm. um, and uh, he's going to begin to dance. Okay. Sitting Bull stood up and began to slowly dance while staring just below the sun. He wasn't skewered and tethered to the medicine pole as in his previous sun dances. Glistening with sweat, the blood on his arms turning dark as it dried and scabbed, he danced for hours. The day became night, and still Sitting Bull danced. Like all sun dancers, Sitting Bull fasted prior to the ceremony, and the loss of blood combined with a lack of nourishment and dehydration put his body under extreme stress, but he'd made a promise to walk in Tonka. The following morning, as the sun's fiery orb rose above the horizon, Sitting Bull again fixed his eyes just beneath it. The the shuffling of his feet was much slower now. His arms hung at his side like lead weights. The world around him was no more. No spectators, no movement, no sounds, no colors, just the sun. Then, from the place where he was staring, 
Many figures on horseback appeared, long knives. But something was wrong. Soldiers' heads were down, their hats falling off. More and more fell from the sky like so many grasshoppers. A few Indian riders swirled among the long knives, and they too rode with heads down. From above, a powerful voice spoke to Sitting Bull. These white men have no ears, so I give them to you. Sitting Bull understood. Long knives would attack his followers, but the soldiers would suffer a great loss. However, the voice warned, Sitting Bull's people must not touch the spoils of their victory, not the soldiers' guns, ammunition, clothing, saddles, or personal items, nothing. If his people violated this command, the free-roaming Lakotas will be in the white man's clutches at mercy of the white man. And last, Sitting Bull was not to personally shed blood in this fight. He could carry a bow and arrows for protection, but he was not to take part in the battle. The Lakotas and Cheyennes watching from the Shade Arbor saw Sitting Bull suddenly falter. The chief looked ill, as if he was about to faint. Several men rushed to his side and eased Sitting Bull to the ground, while others brought water. Among those hovering over Sitting Bull was Black Moon. In a voice weak and hoarse, Sitting Bull told Black Moon of his incredible vision, and he asked his cousin to announce it to the people. Black Moon stood and turned to face the spectators. As he told of the Supreme Chief's vision, everyone listened in awe. The truth of a Sundance vision was never questioned. Whatever you foresaw, said the holy man Black Elk, it always came true. Hmm. And Sitting Bull had proved his closeness to Wakantanka and the gift of prophecy too many times to be doubted. Wow. You know, this is, for our listeners, this is an example of the, really the excellent writing throughout and kind of bringing you right in there. I know uh, it, I was fascinated throughout. I'm going to jump oh, around. Thank you. Well, I'm going to jump around a little bit with you, Mark, so okay. that we cover some different things. All of us, if we've ever watched a western, you know, we see the Indian scalping somebody. And I note that you you made this point in the book, but I'd like you to explain it. So, for the Lakotas, if I understand correctly, they believe that if you disfigured a dead man's body, this somehow had an effect in the afterlife. Correct. That is correct, yes. Um, and this is in a number of sources uh, and, and, and was obtained from the Lakotas. But mm-hmm. yes, um, uh, what you do to that body, uh, they will bear those same wounds or mutilations uh, in the afterlife. And as far as scalping, and you know, it's important to note mm-hmm. that that was committed by both whites and uh, Indians. It correct. wasn't just an yeah. Indian thing. And as uh, Luther Standing Bear, you know, later he was asked, about this is in the 20th century. He's asked about the scalp, and he said, "You know, we took scalps that proved that we had met the enemy and overcome them. Mm-hmm. You know, this was, uh, in, in a way, a, a trophy, like you'd bring home a deer head or, or uh, uh, you know, something of that nature. But it was proof. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not lying to you. I actually, you know, killed this white man, and here's his scalp. Yeah. Well, what the disfiguring of the bodies, though, was this routinely done, or was it only done to someone that the Lakotas felt was, you know, say their worst enemy? This was routinely done because okay. an enemy was an enemy. Um, now, um, uh, and also, and I th- and I mentioned this in the book. Uh, another purpose uh, was not just um, to send someone into the afterlife disfigure, disfigure but it was also um, to cause as much pain. I mean, this is brutal. Mm-hmm. To cause as much pain as possible to the relatives who would find their their loved one cut into pieces. Yeah. Uh, so it had multiple uh, goals. 
And uh, so, uh, and and other nations did this too. It wasn't just the Lakotas, but um, you wanted to um, hurt both psychologically and physically uh, the enemy. And by disfiguring someone, you're causing uh, your enemy pain. You know, the enemy's family pain. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so I'm, I'm going to jump again. It seemed to me that the Lakotas had a very flexible idea of family. You you point out, for example, that Sitting Bull adopted as his brother a 10-year-old Indian boy who stood to fight when Sitting Bull yeah. and his warriors attacked their village. Were yeah. there other non-family members who would kind of routinely be adopted? Yes. Um, uh, but I will say with Sitting Bull, uh, he was known more than, uh, than others uh, for his kindness to captives or prisoners. And he was also well-known he was very fond of children. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, most people, I think, are fond of children, so maybe that's not that unusual. But he was especially fond of children. And um, so, uh, uh, you know, he uh, was and, – and this one individual, this one, you know, very young uh, boy who resisted as, as uh, Sitting Bull's warriors attacked his family and killed all of them. Um, but he stood up to Sitting Bull, and then he called out to Sitting Bull, brother, save me. Um, and Sitting Bull did, and he adopted him. And it wasn't the first person that Sitting Bull uh, adopted. He also adopted, and this was a Sitting Bull would later say, you probably remember that it was his, his biggest mistake he yes, ever made. Yeah, yeah. He, he adopted a white, uh, actually part Polynesian, uh, and a white man uh, named uh, Frank Gruard, who uh, became very close to Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, but then went back to the white man and was a scout uh, for troops and led them to their villages and was maybe the most responsible for the demise of the free-roaming Lakotas at the very end uh, of those uh, those times. Yeah. In the book, you write about the Black Hills and the significance yeah. to the Lakotas. Now, as I understand it, they thought that through a treaty, and I, I think it was the Fort Laramie Treaty, they were given these hills and no white man would come onto them. But the United States didn't honor that treaty, right? That is correct. Um, they did not honor it. Um, and the main reason they didn't honor it was because gold was discovered. Anytime, I mean, this, this happens, Mike, over and over again. Yeah. Um, they uh, will set aside a boundary, and the treaty says it belongs to, you know, whatever band or tribe until the white man wants it. And then it's, then it's all bets are off. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, eventually, Sitting Bull fled to Canada while Crazy Horse surrendered. What happened to Crazy Horse once he surrendered? Well, and it's interesting to me that the choices both those individuals' leaders make as to how they're going to um, face you know, the, the ultimate end, right? Yeah. Sitting Bull decides to, to flee across the Holy Line. Crazy Horse decides to stay there. Crazy Horse said, um, why should I leave the land of my people? It was his land. Even if he was to become a prisoner, he was not going to leave the land that was his. Sitting Bull opted to go across. You know, he, there was no way. Sitting Bull feared that if he surrendered, he would be killed, and his people would be killed. So he decided you know, the other option is to go, and he apparently tried to convince Crazy Horse to go with him, but Crazy Horse would not leave. Once Crazy Horse surrenders, and, and they're both doing this because of, I mean, they're starving. Mm-hmm. Crazy Horse, uh, there's the buffalo, uh, there's hardly any left. And uh, that's their food source. And so Crazy Horse, as a good leader, you look out for your people. And he decides that, you know, I'm going to bring my people in and, and they're going to be fed. And we'll, you know, we'll have to, you know, we'll have to do what the white man wants us to do in order to survive. Um, 
but only a few short months later, uh, well, there's all kinds of problems. For instance, mm-hmm. uh, there's jealousy with other Lakota leaders, um, Red Cloud, uh, Spotted Tail. Um, they're jealous of Crazy Horse's importance and fame. Um, and the white men are always afraid of Crazy Horse, and it's very easy for rumors to upset them and cause concern. And whether it's a rumor that Sitting Bull's going to flee with his band, there was another rumor that Sitting Bull plotted. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm talking Crazy, about crazy Horse. Yeah. Now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another rumor that Crazy Horse has plotted to kill General Crook. And so they do, you know, the government, the military does what they, you know, it's like Crazy Horse obviously is a troublemaker, and we're going to have to arrest him and send him off. And they trick Crazy Horse into coming in. He thinks he's going to talk to uh, the commander at the fort. And um, instead he's being led to the guardhouse. And as soon as Sitting Bull sees those bars, I mean, Sitting Bull has lived as a free man ever since he was born. You're talking, about, wait, you're talking about Crazy Horse. I'm sorry. I keep saying Sitting Bull. That's okay. Yeah. Go but ahead. they both lived as free men, obviously. Yes, but yeah. anyway, uh, yeah, Crazy Horse has lived free uh, ever since he was born. And he's yeah. only uh, come in uh, to the uh, Red Cloud Agency in May of 77. This is September. And he sees bars. And so he resists. He, he struggles. He tries to escape. And he's bayoneted. It's a mortal wound. Yeah. Uh, and he dies there yeah. in September of 1877. I mean, it's just tragic, sad, and, and uh, uh, yeah. basically, I look at it as murder myself. Yeah. Now, Sitting Bull has a different approach. Sitting Bull goes to Canada, but then he returns. He's imprisoned, but he becomes something of a national and even an international celebrity, right? Exactly, yes. Um, well, one of the reasons why he's so famous is that, um, you know, most uh, white Americans after the little bighorn, I mean, there's two names that get in the papers: Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. And of course, those are the ones that are holding out uh, at, at the very end. And so they they associate Sitting Bull um, often falsely as leading the warriors and defeating Custer. It was his people, and it was his uh, overall. Was, you know, he was in command uh, or oversaw this large village, but. Um, Anyway, they, they just think of Sitting Bull as the, the man that defeated the famous Civil War general. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, he's famous, and uh, uh, there are all kinds of people that are seeking to capitalize monetarily off that fame. And one of them uh, who did very well uh, was, of course, Buffalo Bill Cody. And it's important to remember that you know, Sitting Bull wasn't necessarily crazy about going on this Wild West ex- exhibition, but he was promised that he would get to meet the president. He had a reason. He wanted to, to advocate for his people. He wanted a place set aside for them where they wouldn't be bothered by white men. And so with this promise that he would meet the president, the great father, he agreed to go with Buffalo Bill. And you know from the book what he got. All he right, got was a right. handshake. Well, so. the one thing, though, I did find a little bit amusing was he, Sitting Bull quickly came to understand the value of having money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he did. And the way, you know, some people have said, well, isn't this kind of a contradiction? Or I said, no, I think the way Sitting Bull looked at it, he thought these people were foolish. If they're going to give me money for a signature, you know, yeah. I'll take it. And then he turned around and used it for his people for food. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, Sitting Bull didn't go out and buy himself, you know, fancy clothes or whatever. He gave it all away. Um, and yeah. which was he was also criticized for that. Also, it's like you know you're wasting all this money, you know, on these feasts or whatever. And it's like, well, that's what a leader does. It's yeah. genero- That's one of the four Lakota virtues: generosity. And especially with a leader, you share. 
uh, you look out for their welfare. That's the same reason why he took several individuals with him. That was part of the contract. Right. You know, it's not only benefiting him, but he's trying to help out uh, his friends and relatives, too. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's a fascinating period in his life. T- toward the end of your book, you cover something called the ghost dance, in yes. which some of the Lakotas were convinced that a messiah would arise and restore them if only they danced enough. I found that to be very poignant and actually a little bit sad. And you made the point that the dance, quote, gave them hope and purpose, close quote. Do you think that this grasping at this idea, and I guess I'm asking for an opinion, do you think this grasping at this idea was born from the despair of their circumstances? Yes, absolutely. Um, And especially with, uh, uh, it it occurred, it it was simultaneous with, uh, on some of the reservations or agencies, they were reducing rations mm-hmm. uh, for the Lakotas, so they were hungry. And then some of these agents did it purposefully because uh, Agent McLaughlin, if, uh, he was the Standing Rock agent. And if you um, were a part of Sitting Bull's people or did something that he didn't like, well, he reduced your rations. Uh, and so here's a promise of the return of the buffalo. And not only that, but uh, the, the promise that uh, Euro-Americans, white people, would go away. Um, and would you know be on another part of the earth, and they would have their their land back. So yeah, it, it, it all springs from uh, you know the despair they were experiencing, and also their um, what would you call it their nostalgia for their uh, previous life, mm-hmm. uh, where they had everything that they needed. Um, so uh, and you know it's also important with the ghost dances. Uh, you know all they did was dance. Right. In fact, this one holy man, Short, Short Bull, said, who would have imagined there'd be all this trouble over dancing? That's all they were doing. But, of course, the right. white people, it's like, oh, they're getting ready to break out. You know, yeah. We're going to have another Indian war. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it really bothered them that they were dancing. Okay. And it had very tragic results. Yes, it did. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask one final question of you, if I can. And it's kind of a jump from, from some parts of the book. But... Can, can you talk a little bit about the government's effort to erase Indian culture with the schools that it set up? Because it's my understanding that this idea starts around this time period, correct? Yes. Um, uh, what the Indian Bureau and, and many white people believed was that the only way to save the American Indian was to erase all aspects of their traditional culture and basically, quote, civilize them. This is the word you see all over and over in literature. They had to civilize the Indian, which means they, uh, the children were sent off to boarding schools, uh, their hair was cut, they wore uniforms, the girls wore dresses, uh, they were not allowed to speak their language, um, and uh, they even, the government even outlawed the sun dance uh, in the late 19th century, so they weren't allowed to dance. You know, they, it was, to, to agents like McLaughlin and others, it was paganism, mm-hmm. and they felt like, you know, uh, and, and some of these people, whether it was missionaries or, the, or individuals in the Indian Bureau, I mean, uh, they they had um, good intentions. They they thought, you know, they were wrong-headed, but they thought that for the Indians to survive into the future, they had to become like white people. They thought that was the answer for them. Otherwise, they just would never be able to exist. And so, uh, unfortunately, it was completely wrong-headed. Uh, it caused a lot more strife and and um, pain uh, than anything else, and uh, uh, and also um, you know we're, we're it's very uh, lucky 
that they weren't successful yeah. uh, because uh, many of these traditions still survive. And, of course, the languages to this day, no thanks to uh, the Indian Bureau of the time. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I mean, it was... I call it um, cultural genocide, yeah. essentially what was being practiced. Well, Mark, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, you've been listening to the Writers' Forum, and I've been speaking with author Mark Lee Gardner about his new book, The Earth is All That Lasts, which I encourage you to pick up. Uh, Mark, is there a website or some other social media that folks can go to to find out more about yourself, your writings, and about the book? Yeah, sure. Um, they can go to Mark Lee Gardner. Ah, good enough. Mark, thanks so much. Well, thank you, Mike. I really enjoyed it. Oh.